You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, well, if you've got a Bible, go to the Gospel of Luke. And as we are preparing for the holiday season, it's amazing. The whole world is leaning in to the birthday party for one person. You think of all the people that have lived in the history of the world whose birthday would be the most celebrated. Well, it's the the birthday of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is so significant that history actually hinges around his entrance into history. That's why our calendar is B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, that everything literally transitions with the birth of this man, Jesus Christ. And it's curious because he never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his home. He never married. He never had children. He never held a political office. He was not a man of affluence and of great financial prosperity. He was, in fact, born in a rural town to teenage peasant parents. He would have grown up in a home that was about the size of one of our parking stalls where we put a car, and he lived a very simple, humble life. But in his wake, more people know about him, more songs have been written regarding him, more paintings painted of him, and more books written concerning him than anyone who has lived in the history of the world. And so when it comes to the person and the work of Jesus, the question for us is, who is the real Jesus? What are the real facts about him? And what is the truth regarding him? Because if you start to study regarding Jesus, you will quickly find that there is an incredible array of contradictory opinions about Jesus' person and work. And you will find that more books have been written regarding him than anyone who has lived in the history of the world because he is not only famous among some, he is infamous. And so that brings us to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and leaning into the holiday season, we will be looking at the coming of Jesus. Here's how he begins. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, uh, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so Luke introduces us to his work of historically investigating who Jesus is, what Jesus says, and what Jesus does. And so there are six lessons from Luke. The first is that Christian faith, it rests upon historical fact. That Christianity does not claim to be speculation about God, but revelation from God. Christianity is rooted in facts. Jesus lived. Jesus lived without sin. Jesus 
said he was God. Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins and that Jesus rose from death as our Lord God, Savior, King, and Christ. These are historical facts upon which Christianity is founded. If any of these facts are untrue, then we shouldn't love Jesus. We should hate him. We shouldn't accept Jesus. We should reject him. We shouldn't trust Jesus. We should distrust him. We should not long for him. We should in every way flee from him. His claims are so significant. His impact is so startling that it's either true or false that he lived, died, rose, said, and showed he was God. It's true or false. And what Luke is saying is that all of Christianity rests on these historical facts. When he talks about the things that have been accomplished, he's talking about a historical investigation of actual events. This makes him the Indiana Jones of the New Testament. This makes him a crime scene investigator. This makes him a great detective. This makes him an archaeologist. This makes him a historian. And so what we need to see is that he is out doing the hard investigative work. He is traveling to interview the eyewitnesses. He is going to the places that Jesus preached and taught and healed and delivered. He is writing his book about 30 years after Jesus lived, died, rose, and returned into heaven. And many of the eyewitnesses are still alive. And so he knows that there is a short window of historical opportunity where those who were healed, you can actually speak to them. Those who heard Jesus preach and teach, you could actually interview them. Those who knew Jesus intimately, grew up with him from childhood, family members, friends, those who were healed, those who saw his miracles, those who gazed upon his deeds, those who heard his words, they were still alive. And so he had a great investigative opportunity over the course of months or perhaps even years to go find the eyewitnesses, to record like a court stenographer, probably with a team of assistants, everything that was said, everything that was done, trying to get the eyewitness testimony to corroborate. And this is incredibly important because in a day when they didn't have video recording and they didn't have audio recording, it was eyewitness testimony that really was most credible. And that is Luke's undertaking. And as you venture to read his book, you will find that his book is chronological, so he's a historian. It actually shows us 41 events or teachings in Jesus' life that we don't find anywhere else in history and would be lost unless Luke had captured those. Uh, furthermore, some of you might wonder why we picked Luke because the first two chapters give us more insight into the early years of Jesus as a baby and a boy than anything else in the history of the world. And so we want to examine that leading into the holiday season. Now, in saying this, some of you, I would just suspect, perhaps have some suspicion regarding the credibility of Luke's record. You might ask, well, that's in the Bible, and how do we know that the Bible is true? I've heard that it's myth, legend, fable, and folklore, that in fact some of the things written therein regarding Jesus were not things that he taught, but were in fact added to the account far later. 
Now, Luke is interviewing eyewitnesses. He is writing within a roughly 30-year period after the events. He is not given significant time for folk legend or for mythical fables and inserting of things that are not credible, historical, factual, and actual. There was, however, one archaeologist and historian who had suspicion regarding the credibility of Luke. His name is Sir William Ramsey. I'll read you his resume. It's rather impressive. He taught at the University of Oxford and also Aberdeen. He was knighted for his service to scholarship. He was an honorary member of almost every historical and archaeological association. He was awarded the Victorian Medal of the Royal Geographical Society, and he started his research in an effort to disprove the historicity and credibility of Luke. His assumption and presumption at the beginning of his search was this. He did not believe that Luke was a credible historian. And he believed that as a noted archaeologist and historian, that he could disprove Luke's gospel, thereby discredit the teaching of the Bible, thereby disprove the deity of Christ. And after all of his research, here was his summary. He states, and I quote, Luke is a historian of the first rank. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. I want you to know that if you place your faith in Jesus, if you place your hope in Jesus, if you place yourself in Jesus, you do so based upon historical facts that are altogether credible. And even those who have looked at them critically have come to agree with them. Furthermore, I would say if you reject Luke's account, the burden of proof now rests upon you, my dear friend. Who do you find more credible? Who will you trust? Who has done better research than Luke? Who has gone to all of the painstaking labor of traveling and interviewing and compiling and recording and reconciling the record? Number one, Christian faith rests upon historical facts. Number two, powerful leaders need Jesus too. The book is dedicated to its benefactor, a man named Theophilus. His name literally means lover of God. He is either a non-Christian who has a lot of questions about Jesus, perhaps that is you, my friend, or he is perhaps a brand new Christian who is wanting to go public with his faith but wants to make sure that the Jesus he is trusted in is actually trustworthy. In either event or accord, he is a powerful man with a public position. When he is called, O most excellent Theophilus, that is a political designation for someone who holds a significant position of power. This would be like calling someone in a British monarchy Lord. Right. This would be, for example, in some Arabian countries, a sheikh. You're, you're looking at someone with a position that others would know. So before he goes public and says, I belong to Jesus, I believe in Jesus, he wants to know whether or not the facts that he has been told regarding Jesus are in fact true. Now, when it comes to this, sometimes we hear that Christianity is for those who are powerless, and it is but it is also for those who are powerful. Christianity is for those who are uneducated and also those like Theophilus and Luke who are well-educated. Christianity is for those who are outside positions of authority on the margins. It is also for those in authority in the seats of power. And we see all of this. We see all of this here typified and demonstrated in the opening lines of Luke. Number three, scholarship can be worship. God created our mind 
And truth is that which corresponds with reality. And the Bible instructs us to love God with all of our mind, which means that scholarship can be worship. God has given you some great intellect. Some of you have great insight, great education, and a high IQ. And we praise God for that. You can love God, serve God, worship God with your mind and scholarship can be for you worship. This can be whether you're a theologian or a surgeon. Whatever God has given you as a skill set, it is for his glory and the good of others. And so what we see with Luke is that he is an incredibly articulate, well-educated man. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, we are told that he is, quote, Luke the physician. He's a trained medical doctor. He is one who has a high IQ and a good intellect and does his research with painstaking, copious commitment. I. Howard Marshall, a great thinker in his own right and a Bible commentator, says this, The literary style of Luke demonstrates that the author was a well-educated person. Now, Luke is, in fact, the number one author of the New Testament. Uh, If you are perhaps not a Christian, the Bible is actually a library of books half of which you will find in the Old Testament, some 39 books, and that is anticipating the coming of Jesus. In the New Testament, you will see 27 additional books, and those are after the coming of Jesus. When it comes to the New Testament, there is one man who writes the largest number of books. His name is Paul. He writes 13, perhaps 14 books. The book of Hebrews, there is a debate regarding its authorship. But when it comes to sheer length and contribution, Luke, though he only wrote two books, is the number one and primary contributor to the entire New Testament. And so he, in fact, writes two books, Luke and Acts, and they're like a prequel and a sequel. Okay, Star Wars 1 and 2, it's like that. Okay, And the way that it works, he dedicates both to Theophilus because Theophilus was the benefactor who bankrolled the research for those two books of the Bible. He writes Luke to show the chronological life and ministry of Jesus. After Jesus died, rose, and ascended, he then picks up the story in Acts, showing the chronological record, not only of Christ, but of Christianity in the wake of the resurrection of Christ. And so he is the historian of the New Testament. And what we see from his example is that scholarship can be worship. He is close friends with the Apostle Paul. He travels frequently with Paul. When you read in the book of Acts, Paul says, where it says of Paul, that we went here and we went there and we did this and we did that, the companion with him is often Luke. Luke was his friend. Luke was his partner. Luke was the one who traveled with him and was alongside of him. And I would suspect even the personal physician to Paul. He gets beaten, shipwrecked, homeless, left for dead. They throw rocks at him. He's in a bad place. And I think that if you've ever watched a cage fight or a boxing match, there's always a stool and eventually the guy sits in it and some guy with gloves comes over and puts him back together and sends him back out. I think that was Luke. I think Luke was like Paul's cup man in his corner. Okay, they threw rocks at you. They left you adrift on the open sea. They tried to kill you. Come over here. Let me be your doctor. Patch you up. Go get him. Preach some more about Jesus. These two guys are on mission throughout the totality of the New Testament until they both suffer a martyr's death. And here's what we find regarding Luke. This is written roughly 100 years after he walked the earth. We find it in history. It says, indeed, Luke was an Antiochian serene. 
that tells us where he was from. A doctor by profession, if you're in the medical profession, you're like Luke, a disciple of the apostles. So he wasn't one of the 12 with Jesus. He was with the 12 who were with Jesus. Later, however, he followed Paul until his martyrdom, serving the Lord blamelessly. He never had a wife, never fathered children, and died at the age of 84. It says, full of the Holy Spirit. That would be my prayer for you, that we would die serving the Lord and that the record would say they were full of the Holy Spirit. That's Luke. That's Luke. And today his body resides in Ephesus. We know where his tomb is. He did live. I've been there, I think, on three occasions. My family has been there with me. We know where Luke is buried. He really did live. He really did do these things. He, he, he really is buried in what is modern-day Turkey. And scholarship can be worship. Uh, number four, God loves the whole world one person at a time. The Bible does tell us that God loves the world, and he does. God loves the whole world, and he loves the whole world one person at a time. Consider for a moment... The majority of the New Testament, the books of Luke and Acts, are written to one man, Theophilus. God loves one man so much that he would have two books of the Bible written to serve that one man. That God loves Theophilus so dearly that this entire project is to help answer his questions and perhaps his objections about Jesus. I need you to know that God loves the whole world. And he also not only sees numbers, but faces with names. That God loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you. And he loves us all, but he loves us one at a time. And he loves Theophilus so much that two books of the Bible are written to serve one person. In addition, ministry vision requires financial provision. Consider, if you will, Luke traveling from one city to another city to another city to another city. He's scheduling appointments. He's looking for eyewitnesses. He's tracking down facts. He's going to places where it says that Jesus preached or taught or delivered someone. He's doing all of his record. He's writing it down on some sort of scroll. It's being carried. There's probably a research team with him. There are food costs. There are travel costs. There are lodging costs. There are research costs. And then he's compiling it all and he's summarizing all and he's fact-checking it all and he's double-checking it all. You can imagine that this is months perhaps even years. I've worked on some significant research projects. I can't even imagine one of this scope and magnitude. This is a massively expensive historical undertaking. And, And the question is, how will Luke's ministry vision be accomplished? It's by financial provision. Most commentators believe that Theophilus was the one who bankrolled this ministry project. Because he is named in Luke and Acts at the beginning, that was customary in that culture for your benefactor. So in our day, if you give a big gift to a university, they'll name a building or a stadium after you. If you give a big gift to a park, they'll name a bench or a place after you. So it was in that day, if you gave a generous gift, then that work would be commissioned in your honor as the benefactor. And so most believe that when it mentions Theophilus, it mentions the one who was the bankroller and the benefactor who made it possible. I need you to see that some are on the front line. That was Luke. Some are on the supply line. That's Theophilus. And both are ministry and both are necessary for the advancing of God's kingdom and cause. 
And what this means is that we shouldn't hold to the same thinking as our culture. And our culture has either prosperity theology or poverty theology. Prosperity theology is where the wealthy people get together and say, we're the good guys and the poor are the bad guys. And then the poor have their own meeting and they say, we took a vote. And curiously enough, we came to the exact opposite conclusion. We decided that the poor people were the good people and the rich people were the bad people. The truth is that there are poor people and rich people who love God, serve God in a meaningful way in the Bible. And God doesn't care about whether you're poor or rich. He cares about whether or not you're generous because God is generous and our God is a giver, not a taker. And whether you have much or little, God wants you to be generous with what you have. But what we see here is that Theophilus was able to give at such an amount that you and I now have two books of the Bible because of the generous financial research of one person. So our response should be, we have received this great deposit and we want to give so that the ministry that Luke was a part of, getting the Bible teaching of Jesus out would continue into the future. And this is really remarkable. I'm guessing that when he stood before the Lord Jesus for judgment, Theophilus looked back on his life and all the money he spent, and I'm sure there were things that he regretted spending his money on. Bankrolling two books of the Bible, I doubt he regretted. Can you imagine that? You and I need to understand that when we give to the Lord's work, people meet Jesus, people are saved, people go from hell to heaven, marriages and relationships are reconciled, children get godly parents, destinies are altered, people that are hopeless are given hope, people that are suffering are given healing, people who are living under deception receive revelation and truth. And so when we give, we're giving for the advancement of the cause of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and that ministry vision requires provision. And I just, I feel inclined to say this. 50 years ago, God's people decided there should be a building right here in Scottsdale, Arizona. And they cleared the land and they built the building. And 50 years later, we inherit that great gift. And now we are stewards of it. And ministry is all about receiving and then giving. And about receiving and giving and receiving and giving. And the joy is not just in the getting. It is in fact in the giving. And this is financial provision for ministry vision, typified and demonstrated in the generosity of Theophilus. And then number six, sometimes position is overrated. The author of this book, this man, Luke, he's never called a pastor, an elder, a bishop, a pope, a priest, a prophet, an apostle, or a deacon. He has no title. Who's that? Luke. That's it. What is he? He's a doctor. Just a doctor? Yeah. Well, where's his sermons? He doesn't preach. We never see Luke preach. Well, was he one of the apostles? No, no, he wasn't. He wasn't one of the 12 with the Lord Jesus. He came after that. Here's what I want you to see. We live in a world, sometimes even in the church and in ministry, where it's all about title holding and ladder climbing. Are you a member? Are you a deacon? Are you an elder? Are you governing? Are you ruling? Do you have authority? What's your job? What's your title? What's your role? Where are you at on the ladder? It doesn't matter what your title is. It matters what your impact is. Luke had no title and quite an impact, right? I mean, he wrote two books of the Bible. That's, that's, that's really good. However you're scoring it, that's pretty amazing. You don't need a title to make an impact. You don't need a title to make a difference. You don't need a title to serve Jesus. 
You just need to understand the gifts that he's given you and to use them to forward his kingdom. And so as far as we could tell, Luke's even bivocational. He's a medical doctor. Some of you are in business. Some of you are successful in business. Some of you have a career and you wonder, should I go into ministry? Let me tell you from Luke's example, you are in ministry. That our God rules over everyone and everything. He doesn't see those in ministry and those not in ministry. He sees those who belong to him on mission, in ministry, wherever they are. At the workplace, at the university, at home, at the soccer game, at the doctor's office. And Luke has this correct biblical understanding that he belongs to Jesus. He's a doctor. He also does ministry. He doesn't need a title. He doesn't need a position. He doesn't need to be climbing some ladder. He doesn't need to be on some org chart. He just wants to make a difference and help people meet Jesus. That should be all of our heart. And so you can have a title and very little impact. You can have much impact even without a title. And sometimes positions are highly overrated. Now, let me say this. One of the things I appreciate most about Luke's gospel, he lets Jesus speak for himself. How many of you have been frustrated in cultural, social, or political, maybe even spiritual and theological conversations and discussions where you're talking and people have a lot of opinions about Christ and Christianity, and you know that they're not accurate? They're like, well, Jesus said this. No, he didn't. I read the whole book. It's not in there. That's not what he said. Well, this is what Christians believe. And how many of you have watched the television and just about had your mind explode because someone is on there telling the world what we believe, and that's not what we believe. There is oftentimes a great misrepresentation about Christ, what he actually said, and Christianity, what we actually believe. And everyone likes to talk about Jesus, but if you want to know him, the best thing is to listen to him. And so what I appreciate about Luke's gospel, if you read all of Luke, roughly half of the verses in the book are just Jesus' own words speaking for himself, telling us who he is. Telling us who he is. Because you know what? In the history of the world, more people have more opinions about Jesus than anyone who's ever lived. But I would like to know what's Jesus' own opinion of himself. So I want to give you three examples from Luke's gospel where he lets Jesus speak for himself. The first is that Jesus said he was the savior in Luke 4. The context is this. It's the equivalent of their church service. They're in a synagogue. It's on the Sabbath day, the Lord's day. So it's people like us getting together to hear God's word. And so Jesus goes up front and this is a little rural hometown where he grew up and everybody knew him. Right? He played little league with the kids and You know, Joseph's dad was a carpenter who did some work for their families, small town. Jesus stands up and he reads the scriptures and he reads from Isaiah. And he reads this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's a big claim. Because he has anointed me. I'm here on a mission to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering a sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's like, I'm going to save people, heal people, and crush demons. Well, that's quite a resume. Imagine putting that on LinkedIn. That's unbelievable. This is his resume. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the story continues near the end of the chapter. People heard it. They didn't like it. Here's what you need to know. Jesus clearly, emphatically, publicly, repeatedly, unashamedly tells people who he is and they don't like it. 
Some of you have been wrongly told Jesus didn't think he was God. Jesus didn't say he was God. That was over time additional myth, fable, legend, and folklore that was added to the story of Jesus. But it's not in fact true. It is true. Jesus in many ways on many occasions to many people said he was God. Said he was coming to forgive sin and to save sinners. Now I don't know about you. If I said something that was inaccurate or unclear and it was highly offensive and people tried to kill me, I would change that information. Amen? I would edit that. Oh, you thought I said I was God? I'm dyslexic. I, I thought I was a dog. I apologize. You know, my bad. Miscommunication. Let me clean that up. Please put the pitchforks down. Right? I would clean that up. Jesus says it. They try to kill him. He says it again. Here we read, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They're not happy to hear this. And they rose up and drove him out of town. These are people he knew and grew up with. To the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The context that he's reading from is that about 700 years prior in the Old Testament, a prophet named Isaiah said that the Lord was coming. God is coming into human history. He's coming to preach good news. He's coming to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind. He is coming to conquer demons. He is coming to set captives free. This is who he is. This is what he does. Wait for him, long for him, hope for him, anticipate for him, yearn for him. And here's how you will know that it is him, that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Just what happened at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. And when Jesus stands up in the synagogue, he points to that verse, he reads it and he says, and I quote, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What he's saying is God has arrived. God has arrived. And everyone realizes what he has said. And even though they grew up with him and they knew him and they went to school with him, they wanted to kill him. Make no mistake, my friend. Jesus says he's God. Jesus says he's God. And this is an extraordinary claim. This is an unusual claim. This is, in fact, a nearly unprecedented claim. In the history of the world, there have only been a short list of people who said they were God, and they for sure were not. Right? Furthermore, there is no founder of any major world religion who makes this claim, I am God. Only Jesus makes that claim. In fact, when Jesus tells us repeatedly that he is without sin in God, those are unprecedented claims. In fact, we tend to think that the holiest people are those who know that they're not God and know how sinful they are. When Jesus says that he is God and he is without sin, he is saying something that other religious leaders, frankly, do not say. That claim is unprecedented. It is unparalleled. It is unequaled. And that is the kind of thing that he is saying here, which is why he is receiving the reaction that he is receiving. Secondly, Jesus said that he forgives sin as the son of man. This is a massive statement. Jesus said to this guy, man, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question. So 
the scribes and the Pharisees, when you see them show up, these are the religious people. Okay? Some of you are here and you're like, don't make me religious. Oh, don't become religious. Right? You don't want to be religious. We don't want you to be religious. Religious people killed God. We're not trying to make you religious. We want you to meet Jesus. And religious people hated Jesus. Religious people, they're the people who think God wrote a book. He wrote some rules. That was a good start. We'll finish it and write the rest of the rules. And then we'll write rules about the rules. And then we'll enforce the rules. And we'll send out people with clipboards to observe the rules. And if you disobey the rules, then we're going to punish you. Because we're taking God's position, making laws and judging people. We're not for religion, we're for Jesus, and religious people always hate Jesus, and they always oppose Jesus, and they always confuse people thinking that what they're doing is in the name of God. The religious people show up to argue with Jesus, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? What's blasphemy? Someone who's not God says they're God. What happens in the Old Testament if you blaspheme? What happens? They kill you. You're done. There's no repeat offenders. What are you going to do with Tom? Tom keeps saying he's God. No, one and done, son. That's it. He said he was God. Boom, he's done. That's it. You get killed for saying you're God. Imagine going 2,000 years ago to a devoutly Jewish cultural context and as a 30-something homeless guy who's poor from a rural town saying... You're welcome, God's here. (laughs) But the homeless virgin, are you kidding me? Who grew up in Apache Junction, were you kidding me? (laughs) Nazareth. (laughs) Now imagine, imagine even today you went to a strict Islamic country under the rule of Sharia law does not distinguish separation of church and state. It was not dissimilar in the days of Jesus, religiously speaking. And you show up and you, you arrive at customs and they say, okay, uh, state your name, Lord God. Oh, is that your first or last name, Lord? You know, that's, that's the kind of thing you don't say in a strictly religious environment because you get killed for that. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus says this, and Jesus repeats this, and Jesus never corrects this, and he never apologizes for this. Now, my friend, if you don't think that he's God, at least consider that he thought he was God. When Jesus perceived their, well, they ask, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? He's doing God's job. This had to be a weird conversation. Okay? They're thinking, this guy's evil, we need to kill him. Jesus says, I know what you're thinking. That's interesting. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, my friend, do you know that God knows your thoughts? God, God not only hears your words, sees your deeds, he knows your thoughts. How many of you right now, that scares you? It should. God knows your thoughts. God knows your thoughts. Jesus knew their thoughts. He answered them, why do you question in your hearts? God knows your heart. Sometimes we'll say, you can't judge my heart. Well, Jesus can. You don't know my heart. Jesus does. Which is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man, important title, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Two things. Jesus says he forgives sins as the Son of Man. 
Forgiving sin is solely the domain of God. You need to understand this. We have one problem and all the other problems are the result of the one problem. And the one problem is sin. That God is holy, we are unholy. God is good, we are bad. God has a straight path and we've gone a crooked way. That sin includes our thoughts, our words, our deeds, and our motives. That sin includes not only commission where we do what is wrong, it's omission where we fail to do what is right. This is why the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is why even those who are not Christians understand this and agree and tend to say, hey, nobody is perfect. Well, there's one, Jesus. Everyone else is imperfect. Everyone else is a sinner and we need a savior. And this is why it says in Psalm 51, 4, and it's a great declaration. It is stated against you only, Lord God, have I sinned. That when we sin, we sin against God. We need to be forgiven by God. Otherwise, we have declared war on God. We have declared hostility against God. We have separated ourselves from God. That God has a problem with all of us. And unless there is provision, there will be punishment. And when Jesus says, you're forgiven, the religious people rightly understand only God can do that. And they wrongly misunderstand that Jesus alone is that God. Here's what I want you to know. You're a sinner. You need to be forgiven. Only Jesus can forgive you. Only Jesus can forgive you. So he lives a sinless life. He eventually ultimately goes to the cross to pay a penalty. He substitutes himself. He puts himself in our place. He is punished for our sins. And one of the great declarations from the cross from the Lord Jesus is, Father, forgive them. Not only did Jesus forgive, Jesus allows forgiveness. That's Jesus. You need Jesus. You don't need to get better. You don't need to try harder. You don't need to do better. You need Jesus. Number two, he is the son of man. You see this title? Now, we may not fully comprehend it, but they would have assuredly understood it. Jesus has a number of titles for himself that he likes. His most favorite, preferred, is the son of man. He uses this designation of himself roughly 80 times. Now, in hearing this, they would have reminded themselves of where this appears. Daniel. 600 years before Jesus was even born, the prophet Daniel, peering into the future, prophesied and promised the coming of one called the Son of Man. Let me read it to you from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night. So Daniel gets a glimpse into the future. He gets to lean into history. I looked and there before me was a son of man. This is God become a man. This is one who looks like a person, but it's really God. Something extraordinary is happening here. Coming on the clouds of heaven. So it's a person that doesn't rise from the earth up to ascend into some divine status. It is God with his eternal kingdom and glory writing down into human history 
on a cloud. He approached the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given, this Son of Man, authority, glory, and sovereign power. That's unequaled, unprecedented. Goes on to say, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him, bowed down to him, acknowledged him, glorified him, submitted to him, surrendered to him, acknowledged, honored, obeyed him. Every nation, every language, every tribe, every culture, every people. You know what the answer to all problems is? Jesus. There's only reconciliation around Jesus. There's only an end to racial hostility around Jesus. There's only an end to global war around Jesus. When everyone gets off their throne and he comes and alone sits on the throne and we all gather around that throne, then the kingdom has come, then the king is present, then all things are made new, and then everything is as God intended it. And so they were awaiting the coming of this son of man, this king, bringing this kingdom. It goes on to say his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And Jesus says, I'm the son of man. You are God, our creator and king who has a kingdom that has visited the earth to forgive sin, to unveil a kingdom that will eventually come to full fruition and never end and include people from all the nations of the earth, forgiving all their sin, giving them eternal life forever. That's me. That's what he's saying. And again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Those who hear him hate him because they don't believe who he reveals himself to be. Here's my question for you. Who do you think Jesus is? One of the most penetrating, insightful, significant questions that Jesus ever asked was this. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that? This is who Jesus says he is. Who do you say that he is? Lastly, Jesus promised to die and rise. He told us exactly what he was going to do. He told us exactly because he knew in advance. Taking the 12, Luke 18 tells us, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the who, there it is again, the son of man. By the prophets, the whole Old Testament, my friend, is about Jesus. This is the book that God wrote. It's the only perfect thing on the earth. That it is ultimately for you, but it is not primarily about you. The whole point of the Bible is to reveal the person and work of Jesus so that you would turn from sin, trust in him, have relationship with him, newness of life, become like him, and be with him forever. Well, Jesus says everything that was written was ultimately the foreshadowing of my forthcoming. It was all pointing and prophesying, yearning, anticipating, longing, and leaning into the future of my coming. For he will be delivered, Jesus says, over to the Gentiles. That's the Roman government. And will be mocked. That happened. Shamefully treated. That happened. Spit upon. That happened. And flogged, it tells us. Flogging is where they would take a man. They would strip him nearly naked. They would affix his arms over his head so that his back and shoulders and buttocks were exposed and revealed. 
An executioner would stand on each side. A Roman soldier would take a cat of nine tails, which was a handle with leather straps. And at the end, there were shards of metal, bone, or glass. And they would sink the hooks deeply into the man's flesh. And then they would rip the flesh off of his body, leaving him sometimes dead just from the flogging. That's why Isaiah prophesied that he would be marred beyond human likeness. Jesus was flogged. We did this to God. Then it says that they will kill him, Jesus promises. He did die. A Roman executioner declared him to be dead to ensure that he was dead after being crucified in the most sensitive nerve centers in the human body, the hands and the feet. An executioner took a spear, ran it underneath his rib cage, puncturing his heart sack so that water and blood literally flowed from his side as Jesus died from a physical and spiritual broken heart. To ensure that he was dead, they wrapped him in 100 pounds-ish of burial linens and spices. They put him in a cold tomb without medical care or treatment. They stationed a, a soldier in front to guard it. They rolled an enormous stone over the entryway, and the Roman seal was affixed, assuring that no one tampered with the dead body of Jesus. He died. And Jesus said, but on the third day, I will rise. So it's, oh, Sunday, it's about that time. Jesus comes back to life, conquers Satan's sin, death, hell, delivers us from the wrath of God. Everything Jesus said is true because Jesus said everything would be fulfilled and it was. He said he would die. He said he would rise. He did die. He did rise. He alone conquers sin. He alone defeats death. No one says what Jesus says. No one does what Jesus does because no one is like Jesus is. Amen? And he conquers death. He then takes off his burial linens. He removes the stone. He walks back into town. Over the course of 40 days, crowds up to 500 see him alive. This is the historical record in 1 Corinthians 15 and Luke's account in Luke and Acts. People start loving, serving, worshiping Jesus. His mom worships him. His brothers worship him. His enemies worship him. They all see that he is alive. Even those who doubt like Thomas come and see his crucifixion scars and they become believers. And ultimately after 40 days, Jesus returns into heaven. And the good news of Christianity goes out to the nations, which is an amazing evidence. And my friend, if you don't believe in Jesus, my whole prayer, my whole goal is that today you would come to believe in Jesus, that he is who he says he is, that he has done what he said he would do. And that ultimately Christianity comes in the wake of Christ. They stop worshiping on Saturday, start worshiping on Sunday, because that's the day of Jesus' resurrection. All of a sudden they start worshiping Jesus as God, and we're going to worship Jesus as God. They start partaking, our first brothers and sisters did a few thousand years ago, in communion, remembering through the broken body of Jesus as typified in the bread and the shed blood of Jesus through the wine, remembering his crucifixion in their place where their God died so that they might be loved and forgiven. And then Christians started being baptized. Just as Jesus was baptized, so Christians started being baptized. And they're showing that as Jesus died and rose, so through their faith in Jesus, they are dead to their old way of life, raised as a new person, new creation, new nature, new desires, new destiny, new eternity with new hope as a new person by the new power of the Holy Spirit. 
And all of a sudden, people started being baptized. And just as water cleanses us from filth, it shows that Jesus cleanses us from the filth of sin. So it's, it's our turn. We're going to worship Jesus today. We're going to sing and celebrate our resurrected, reigning, triumphant King. He is alive and well. He hears our prayers, and he is coming again to establish his kingdom. When you're ready, if you're a Christian, you can partake of communion, remembering Jesus' broken body and shed blood. And I want you to know that he loves you, and he forgives you, and he's for you, and he's with you forever. And if you have never been baptized, we would love to baptize you today. Some of you may say, I'm not ready for that. We are, so you will be. We have towels, we have t-shirts, we have shorts, we have a changing area. If you have any desire to publicly profess your belief in Jesus through baptism, the leaders in the back would love to talk with you and pray for you. If you have any questions about Jesus, we would like to answer those right now. If you would like someone to pray for you, we would like to do that for you right now. And if you're at the point where you feel God's stirring and God's longing and God's calling and changing and cultivating in you a new life in Jesus, you need to not delay. You need to right now today, go to the back, be prayed for, and we will baptize you. And I'll tell you what, Trinity Church, when people get saved and baptized, we like to celebrate. Amen? All right. So let me pray. Father, thank you for my job. I love, love, love teaching the Bible here at the church. I love these people. I pray blessing over them. I pray encouragement over them. I pray hope over them. I pray joy over them. I pray that as we get ready for the holidays, that we would start with Jesus, that he would be in the center of our heart, that he would be on the horizon of our sight, that he would be on the tip of our tongue as we sing his praises. Lord, as we are getting ready for the biggest event every year, Christmas, Let us love Jesus. Let us serve Jesus. Let us remember Jesus. Let us enjoy Jesus. Let us worship Jesus. Let us become like Jesus. God, I pray right now that you would send the Holy Spirit and do a divine supernatural work in the lives of these people. If there are any who don't know you, I pray they would come to know you right now. If there are any that have questions about you, I pray that they would have the courage to go get an answer right now. For any who have a hurt, a pain, a burden, or a strife, I pray that they would come to be prayed for right now. Lord God, please let us not miss this sacred opportunity to be your people in your presence, singing your praises. And lastly, Lord God, as we come to worship you, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you tell us who you are. You told us what you have done, and you did everything that you said you would do. And we trust you to come again and finish your work. And until then, keep our hearts yearning while we enjoy your presence. Amen.